I'm glad you make yourself laugh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how else do you get through life? Uh, um, yes, I'm, I'm actually doom scrolling. As, uh, uh, there was a, a terror attack in uh, Tel Aviv, and a few uh, friends of mine are now basically in lockdown. Oh but they're okay. Yeah, I hope so. You know, moments like these have the power of kind of um, grounding some of the things that we talk about in the abstract on the pod. Like last episode, we were talking about the power of violence as a political tool. Yeah. And like I said then, I'm very interested in thinking about it more seriously and deeply. Um, but this is also our reminder of how fragile, how brittle social mm-hmm. order and peace really are. Yeah. And how easily and quickly things can collapse. Because I mean, when you see this happen in places like Israel, where there is a history of political contention and violence and blood feuds, an attack like that is never... Uh, isolated and will always lead to worse things, whether it is over-response by uh, government, which would lead to further deaths or um, the erosion of trusts when you have different populations living together. Mm -hmm. These things do not end well. These things do not improve on the ability to live in a pluralistic society. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm very firmly skeptical of the power of violence to, um, to communicate constructive messages. Mm. But even as I'm saying this, I can foresee the objections that somebody like Kelly, who we talked to last week, would bring up. So, you know, I'll save it when, when we have a more serious uh, t- discussion of this topic. Huh, now that I think about it, our next episode kind of wades into this area. Right how to manage conflict on the brink of violence within diverse societies. So stay tuned for that. Mm. Today, we have Megan Daum. Mm-hmm. Is it Megan Daum or Megan Daum? Let's, let's brush this off as my Israeli accent. So Okay. <laughs> yes, Megan, who is the author of many books, including The Problem, uh, the Problem with Everything, which she released in 2019. And we actually start our conversation talking about that book because I th- she kind of describes it as a pivot point in her career in which she doesn't find that she's done anything terribly different in the way she writes, but the way she's received has suddenly shifted, like the ground has shifted under her. Uh, and so it's pretty interesting talking with Megan about writing in this cancel culture context. She fervently maintains that she, she was not canceled, but... There were a lot of things that happened that were like cancel adjacent that were pretty interesting. And so we kind of dive into what the hell's going on <laughs> in this in this uh, day and age when you try to write about things that are a bit more uh, dicey. Dicey. <laughs> <laughs> her 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 insistence that she's not can she wasn't canceled, which which indeed she wasn't because she she was able to still retain a platform. She has uh, a great podcast, mm. um, which is the unspeakable podcast. The unspeakable podcast. Um, so she's she never suffered that type of public ostracism that some people truly do. What she did experience is a is a softer kind of rebuke from erstwhile friends and the people she thought of as her community. So we talked about that, and we talk about 
the relationships that she's developed, the parasocial relationships that she developed from the podcast that she was following at the time that led her to believe that she was less lonely and what loneliness more broadly um, means in a society that is finding its um, ideological and moral footing increasingly via you know, YouTube channels and, and podcast and avatars and, oh, and yes, and political avatars as well. Yeah. And that's a topic that I think we, we're just like scratching the surface of. And I think we'll, we'll want to explore that more, this idea of loneliness and this the lack of meaning in people's lives. I mean, something we're talking about in, a, in different forms and fashions in a lot of our conversations, but it's something that, that keeps coming up. And so right. I think we'll... We'll be if if uh, if anyone listening has ideas for who you would want to hear on that topic, send us send us a line because this is something we're thinking about a lot these days. Right the the loneliness that political entrepreneurs and conflict entrepreneurs then rush in to fill up. Mm. Those are the the type of vacuums that should not be ultimately filled by politics and and political resentments. Yeah, and one other thing we talk about with Megan, which I think is interesting to note, is you know we start talking about. The, the, those types of journalists like Megan and I guess like <laughs> in some ways us in our small little way, um, the kind of what I think Megan calls this generation of kind of new heterodox content people um, that are trying to have more nuanced conversations and mostly living in the world of podcasts, although often on Substack as well. Um, and the ways that we can, this can like community with a small C and maybe in quotes, uh, community can smaller kind of smaller than small C <laughs> can kind of push conversations in a, in more interesting directions because I feel like maybe some of us have gotten stuck in the same gripes, the same complaints of talking about the things that you can't talk about, right? Yeah, and what, so that we we briefly talk about that too, and I think that's also kind of a thread that we're going to try and develop a little bit more. One asterisk, though, you did use the two forbidden words, uh, heterodox and nuance, which I think we agreed should be completely banned from uh, any English vocabulary, right? Uh, bleep them out. Just bleep them out and post. That's that's what, that's your job, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so it's heterodox, um, nuance, and Noam Chomsky. Those are the bleepable. <laughs> no, you still haven't created your Noam Chomsky jingle. Uh, right, the, the, when are you going to do that? The people are, the, and myself are waiting. So we are uncertain things. <laughs> we are uncertain.substack.com um, where you can sign up, where you can give us schmeckles if you want to support our work so we can buy our coffee. And we are writing more and more content for these uh, supporters. We are uncertain pod on the social media when we are in the social media, which is infrequent, but our DMs are always open. So if you want to write us, we will respond. Be in touch, follow us, support us. If you want to support us, share us with your friends and enemies. And with that, Megan down. Um, all right, well, let's just kick us off for those who may be less familiar with you and your work. Um, I think Adam first encountered, or maybe not first, but kind of grappled with your work mostly with your book, The Problem with Everything, which you wrote, I believe, or you published in 2019. So for those who may not have read the book, would you mind giving the, the Cliff's Notes version of what it's about and the, the stories that you tell in that book? Oh, and and, and, and as, as, as we do, I will make every question a little more complicated so that you'll forget half of it and then, and then our <laughs> listeners will be angry. Um, <laughs> I'll add that you're also now hosting the podcast. Oh, yes, the Unspeakable podcast. If, if you want, I, I'd love to also hear how somebody who's, who's 
career focuses on the written word, finds themselves... <laughs> no longer writing. Yes, no yes, longer right. writing. Retiring the word. Uh, okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's um, I'm excited to, to talk with you. The Problem with Everything. Uh, wow, that book had a long journey. It's my sixth book. And um, it is essentially a self-interrogation. It is an attempt for me as a Gen X woman uh, who grew up with certain kinds of um, ideas and assumptions about women's uh, opportunities and you know women's freedom, especially in the West, uh, how I came to be a little bit puzzled um, with the way certain younger generations of women were seeing themselves in society um, kind of around in 2014, 2015 or so. I noticed that there was a strange disconnect because even though women were doing really better than ever in the West. We were getting educated at higher rates. We were, um, you know, economically empowered, uh, you know, things like getting, you know, higher, higher, going to graduate school and even things like law school, sometimes medical school at higher rates than men. Uh, and boys were falling behind in a lot of ways. So with all of that going on, sort of on the ground, there was this sort of narrative on social media and in legacy media increasingly as well that it had never been a worse time to be a woman, that the patriarchy, uh, you know, was had never been more oppressive. And, you know, we suddenly had notions like toxic masculinity and mansplaining and all these portmanteaus mm -hmm. came up. So I was well, that's just not that's not specific only to feminism, right? It feels like there's just a general <laughs> like a negativity around most anything. It feels like it's the worst time for anything in a yes. lot of ways, right? Pervasive yes. whinginess. Yes, yes, that's a good yes. way of putting it. Right. But so but this was around. Yeah. So but, you know, the the woman conversation was mm. really sort of the starting to be the main thing. The race conversation hadn't yet kind of started bubbling up as much. Right. So so in terms of the book, it started off as a manifesto. It was going to be called You Are Not a Badass. And it was mm. going <laughs> to be kind of uh, like just taking down this kind of rhetoric and this reductive narrative and mm. really looking at the state of women in reality versus what we were sort of seeing online. Then... Yes. Oh, no, may, please may go I ahead. Just, you, I, I there's no short answer that. to this question. Yes, please go <laughs> ahead. And pl please interrupt me. So uh, for you growing up as a as a Gen Xer, what was the worldview that you had around being a woman in the world? Oh, we could do anything. It was the free to be you and me era. So, you know, I was born in 1970. Uh, it was the era of second wave feminism. Uh, the idea was that, you know, girls could be anything we wanted. Um, and And I think more importantly, or actually, you know, significantly, it was cool to be a tomboy, like the girly girl aesthetic was kind of uncool. Um, this was well before the age of the Disney princess. This was well before the age of raunch culture and, you know, obviously ubiquitous pornography on online. So I think it was a really sort of special window um, where we just had a sense of ourselves. Not everybody, of course, but I think a lot of us that um, we were just as good as boys and it, it wasn't even it didn't even need to be pointed out. You know, mm. it was just it was just a given um, and then so not badass, but just as bad, as bad, as bad. Well, bad news bears, you know, I mean, there were, 
there were there just was a sense that um, we all were sort of the same. And in fact, mm-hmm. I mean, I talk about this in the book. You did not have gendered toys back then as much as you have now. Obviously, there was G.I. Joe and there was Barbie, but you did not have like the, you know, highly, highly feminized pink toys versus highly masculinized toys. There was just a sense that we were all playing together um, as, you know, in in, pre-adolescence anyway. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, and then that kind of morphed into when we were in our 20s, there was riot girl culture and there, there was not a sense of being a victim at all in any way. Um, and I was just puzzled when the victim narrative started to to take center stage. Okay, but it sounds like it something happened more broadly in, at least in corporate culture, if you're saying that uh, the, the feminized products didn't exist as much, the feminized identity didn't exist as much, uh, not from the sense of feminism, but from a sense of femininity. Mm-hmm. Well, like my idols growing up as a kid were like Spice Girls, which were very right, quite quite feminine. girly, but still girl power. But or at least yeah. the marketing said, uh, but in a very girly way. Yes, exactly. So it sounds like whatever whatever happened there, the the current I don't know the generation distinction exactly. It's a millennial, zillennial, um, fourth wave feminism sounds like at least to some extent is a response to that. Well, there's it? third wave feminism that came after second wave. I mean, it's so hard to to kind of yeah. categorize these things. So I think that, yeah, I, everything is in an, it comes in response to everything, right? So there was this kind of very second wave, you know, hairy armpit kind of granola feminism that dominated in the 70s and kind of, you know, feminism got a bad name. You had a lot of uh, people, you know, in the in the 90s saying, well, I'm not a feminist, but um, so there was a kind of there was just kind of an earthy, hippie-ish aesthetic um, to feminism that, you know, was still pretty dominant through the 80s. You started that's that was the association with it. Um, and so I do think that this the hyper the girly girl stuff started to come up in reaction to that, you know, the Disney princess phenomenon. Um, I think that a lot of, I think a lot of baby boomer and older Gen X mothers um, kind of, uh, they, they, they raised their own daughters in opposition <laughs> to their mothers. So they kind of indulged a lot of the hyper girly culture. I mean, I see it in, in friends of mine. I mean, it's, it's kind of uncanny. So so, uh, you know, v- various things were happening. But I think even more than that, um, I think just the rise of digital culture just made more media available to more people in more kinds of ways. And uh, messages just got really confusing. Um, and confusing, because confusing how? I mean, I can well, think of many ways, but like, what are you imagining? It was just, it would be easier. So, you know, even though statistically women were doing better than ever. Okay. I mean, we know that for a fact. We know that boys are falling behind in education. We know that, um, you know, the, the gender wage gap has to do with a motherhood penalty. It's not because there's some grand corporate conspiracy against women. I mean, there's all there's all kinds of things that we know that the data shows. But because of social media and digital media, uh, it, it, it's much easier for certain narratives to start circulating and then be sort of sanctioned as true. So even though uh, the idea that women were 
are paid 79 cents on the dollar has to do with a whole bunch of factors that have nothing to do with systemic sexism, really. The narrative was that women are discriminated against and we can't possibly uh, compete with men and we're screwed no matter what and we're going to make 79 cents on the dollar. That just became an article of faith. And it's really hard to compete with um, with sanctioned cultural narratives. Facts have a really hard time competing with those. Uh, for people who are not necessarily plugged into the, the discourse, what are the... Um countervailing explanations for the 75 cents on the dollar? Well, I mean, it's almost always because women, I mean, it, look, as I say, mother nature is the ultimate misogynist. The gender wage gap is a motherhood penalty. So women are more likely, first of all, to go into careers that have more flexibility. They're less likely to work the 80 hours a week that it would take to be, you know, the president of a, you know, CEO of a fortune 500 company. Um, as soon as women start having children, that's when their pay goes down. They leave the workplace um, to to raise children. Then they come back. It's harder to catch up. I'm not saying this is fair. It's horribly unfair, but it's it's a problem of biology. And the unwillingness to look at that, um, I think, is a problem. <laughs> well, I guess it's a problem of biology and also the the inflexibility of the systems that we have to accommodate right. for that biology. Yeah, but I'm not sure that there's any. Yeah, th th but I'm not sure that that's solvable. Actually, so, so yeah, so he, this is actually Vanessa is is slipping into something that I, I I find very interesting. And oh my god, this is a huge parenthetical conversation. Um, but, <laughs> right, we are going to get back to your book. Aren't you glad we? Aren't you glad we uh, we uh, we uh, hit the ground running in this conversation? Yeah. The the whole question of to what extent can society tweak itself in order to accommodate for underlying um, inequities? That's one of the biggest, fundamental, most profound questions of political discourse, right? And the almost inherent requisite optimism of progressivism. <laughs> I, I, I should say I'm not using this term pejoratively, mm -hmm. um, but, but, but the, the true, honest progressive, a person who believes in the ability of planning society in a way that will be better, will better serve its uh, its, its weakest members or the, not even the weakest, but people who are in some way disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. um, the idea is that we are logical enough, we are resourceful enough to be able to plan or or create rules or regulate behavior in a way that will redress and prevent the inequities of society as it is. This requires some sort of metaphysical and temperamental optimism. So I think their response to this would be, oh, okay, so some women want to spend more time with their kids. So we create more accommodations for family leave, right? Mm -hmm. And that is one way to like put a patch on that aspect of nature that is problematic. And to some extent, there, there obviously are some policies that can be adopted that would improve inequities or maybe add a few cents to the, to the discrepancy. But the fundamental question is, can you truly eradicate uh, natural preferences? And I think that's where where we're running into the weirder sides of the current progressive position where people who have been so enamored with the idea that we can plan society, plan ourselves out of natural inequality or, or the or yeah. natural evils 
have have totally forgot that some things might be unfixable or irreducible. Right. Especially when things come really close to the heart of the human condition or the human code, like like sex, um, it gets it can get really uncomfortable because that's where you start having the whole debate about how much of this is is up for 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 policymakers to fix and how much of it is just hardwired misogyny. Yeah, I mean, it, you the question is, can you socially engineer biological imperative out of the culture, out of society, right? Uh, and you, you you can't. I mean, I happen to be a huge proponent of universal daycare. I think that is essential. And I say that as somebody who doesn't have kids. Um, I think that would help a lot. It would especially help working class women, lower class women, But the fact is that even in places like Scandinavia, which have incredible family leave policies and, um, you know, universal health care and all kinds and of parental leave, parental leave. leave. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, all kinds of social um, social structures that that progressives in this country um, aspire to women in those countries uh don't make significantly different choices about their careers than anyone else. Given the choice, they are still more likely to take a job with more flexible hours. They're more likely to to want to be with their kids. That's um, just there's there's no evidence. They're, they're more likely to go into the humanities than into the hard sciences. There's no evidence that having these um, benefits in place changes fundamental human behavior and choices. Reminds me of one of the correspondences or debates between uh, Rawls and Nozick, I think. <laughs> two best friends of, of yours? I don't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who are those guys? Oh, okay. they're two uh, political philosophers, American political philosophers. John Rawls created the famous thought experiment, The Veil of Ignorance, where all members of society come together to plan out what a good society is going to look like, what, are the, what rules are going to govern it. But the trick is that they're all behind a veil of ignorance, not knowing what part they're going to play or be born into in the new society. They don't know their color, their race, their gender, um, their social economic status. And the thought is that deprived of these uh, of this prior knowledge, they can approximate the terms of of a society that will work justly for everyone um, or as close to it as possible. And he got a lot of criticism for aspects of this theory. And some of it, I think, was from Robert Nozick. And, and, and one of those criticisms was that you can't really um, thought experiment yourself out of the injustice of nature, the unjust inequality of nature, that is. And Rawls responded to that criticism saying, well, nature isn't just or unjust. It just is what is just or unjust is how we respond to these inequalities. Huh. So as I see it, the problem happens when we start um, mistaking our ability to respond to some of these natural inequalities. Um, when we start mistaking them for actually being able to eliminate those inequalities. Yeah. But there is still a way for us to actually think of how certain things that we're doing now are making things worse or are exacerbating existing disparities. 
like there was this argument about um, male dominated vocations that the moment that women start being integrated into the workforce, they lose their social currency. They lose the, the value that they had. Um, so it's not necessarily about the 25 missing cents on the dollar, but about some social mindsets that are more difficult to disentangle and more interesting to understand that are interfering with the market. Yeah, these things, yeah, these, these things play off of each other, right? It's, it's always yes and. Right, you know, right. This, and it's, it's a, yeah, it, it goes back and forth. But I just, what I get frustrated with is just the oversimplification of, right. of the whole thing. And that's obviously the algorithm loves uh, oversimplification. <laughs> right, right, right. I heard, yeah, I think this a little bit related. I think I heard you say something on, a, on another podcast where you said something like, nobody's subscribing to the I'm not sure show, something along oh, those the lines. Oh, the I don't know show. The I know. I don't know the show, the which, I don't which, know show does not have a, a huge audience. <laughs> which true. tickled me because we're on certain things. <laughs> so we're essentially right. the I don't know show. <laughs> okay, well. But it's kind of related. Like the algorithm does not does not give you these things. It gives you certainty. It gives you black and white. It gives you answers because that's what people crave despite the fact that there aren't any really. Right. I mean, and yeah, and I've spoken many times about my own experience with startup journalism and my attempt to create the I Don't Know show right? and how that went sour. Oh. Back to your uh, uh, backstory. My yes, backstory back is irrelevant. So we, we stopped at, <laughs> at when the title was still You're Not a Badass. <laughs> you Are Not a Badass. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then um, obviously the, the social justice conversation um, started expanding beyond... Uh, women's issues and it became you know there was stuff about race and there was stuff about gender in terms and, of you know yeah go ahead uh -huh. and this is all happening while you're writing oh like, yeah are, no like this was the most miserable writing experience of my life <laughs> so I started I started writing the book in 2016 it was going to be called you are not a badass um then Oh, I mean, I assumed Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. I mean, I right. thought, oh, well, this will just be funny because, you know, it, it, people, women, people will be able to handle this because we're going to have a woman president and it's going to be mm -hmm. fine. OK, so that obviously did not happen. <laughs> and there wasn't a huge uh, appetite for, uh, you know, complaining about, uh, you know, women being, you know saying that women were not being trampled upon. So then then Trump comes in and then the Me Too movement uh, arises and everything just kind of absolutely explodes. You know, everybody's outraged about a, a million different things all the time. So then I was going to make it more about um, the kind of disconnect between a certain kind of social justice culture and again, reality. And it was going to, I was joking that it was going to be called woke me when it's over. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, that, uh, I, I never really thought that should be the title, but <laughs> my agent thought it should be the title and several other people did too. Um, and then ultimately I just, um, and that was before was... before the whole uh, cottage industries of of books with woke in their title, right? I, oh yeah, I mean, I I this book is so short. I think for every page that is now in the book, I probably threw away twenty pages. It was like <laughs> writing in reverse. It was like writing back. It was the most miserable experience, and because it just kept evolving and it kept changing. And uh, you're trying to capture a moving target. Yeah, basically. exactly, exactly. And so I really just. Um, and I, you know, it was much more reported in places for a while. And like, I wanted to do, I wanted to talk about like the Google memo, um, you know, the James Daymore case and, you know, but then editors were like, don't do that. And then it kind of, this had a, you know, changed editors. So 
you know, ultimately it's like I said, it is a self-interrogation. It is me as a, you know, 50 year old woman, you know, then 49 trying to look at what I am not understanding about the current conversation around a lot of, a lot of issues, particularly feminism and why that is and how we might reconcile them. Uh, so that's really all it is. Mm. Are you glad that you finished it before the pandemic? Like, <laughs> well, I'm the, glad because I got to go on book tour. Yeah. I'm glad right. it came out before yeah, the pandemic right. <laughs> because I got to go. Uh, yeah. I mean, it came out in um, October of 2019. And um, yeah, I mean, it was a strange experience because I, it's, you know, it's my sixth book. I have been somebody who's been embraced by the literary world and the, you know, legacy media and I've, been in the New Yorker and I've been in the New York Times and like I've, you know, won, you know, been on the judging panels and won awards. And I was just considered a completely, I was, I was a member of the literary world in good standing. And um, <laughs> as soon as this book came out, uh, my, my membership was uh, revoked. And that's not the same as being canceled, by the way. I am not canceled in any way. Um, but it was just, uh, it was, I, I had never been, uh, I had never been sort of eviscerated uh, in uh, in polite media the way I was when the book came out. So, what did that look like? Was that reviews? Was that just yeah. like not being invited to things? Like, what did that look like? Um, there were, you know, it was some reviews. It was it was mostly just my, um, you know, a lot of people on I hate to say it on Twitter, which does matter. Um, that's where everybody gathers. A lot of people, you know, just talking about how disappointed they were in me, how you know, just that they felt betrayed because they had been a fan and how could I possibly become this kind of person that I had been red pilled in some way that, you know, and it was a, it was a gross misunderstanding of what I was trying to do. But of course that's how everything is responded to. So I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised at all. Um, what was the, was there something specific that was a sticking point for, for your readers, something that kept coming up again, how could you say that? Or was it just the vague impression that you were now part of the red pill crowd? It was definitely the vague impression because I don't really think that could, they could point to anything. I mean, it, it, there was a mo there's a moment in the book where I say something like, Oh, am I, you know, am I missing something here? Am I getting this wrong? Like, you know, do I, do I have a, you know, substantive gripe or am I just saying, is this some, is this just some version of get off my lawn? You know, again, it's like the self-reflection and the article, the, the review in the New Yorker was Megan Daum says to millennials, get off my lawn. Right. So right. that was basically the, the tone that, the you know, the, the nature of the response, not by everybody. It got some good reviews and, and, you know, look again, it was a New York times notable book. It got a nice review in the New York times. I am not by any means saying it was, it was, you know, overwhelmingly poorly received not at all but it definitely made people mad and um i lost you know certainly i lost some friends and i had some some scowling people um but but overall the the book events were filled with people who were saying thank you for writing this oh my god mm -hmm. these are the things i can't say out loud i you know thank you thank you thank you so there was a giant disconnect between what i was seeing on twitter and what i was seeing on the ground when mm. I was uh, going around promoting the book. I also, I, I, I want to remember to get back to your, your emphasis that you weren't canceled because I appreciated that. And I, and I just want to hear what your definition of 
thing cancel is, if if at all, if there if something does constitute that word or if it's total garbage word, which is something that I'm also struggling with a lot, like mm. trying to like kind of like catalog it. But but before that, what you said about um the type of criticism that you got, it's interesting because it's not that the total evisceration or trying to, to to totally destroy your career, but it was more in the lines of trying to just dismiss the the arguments as kind of unserious get get off my lawn mm-hmm. um um old generation griping yes, which exactly. is which there needs to be a study about how a culture when it tries to push back against criticism against internal criticisms the sort of tactics that it adopts to dismiss it getting too acrid in response to internal criticism can be counterproductive but then there's a softer style of dismissiveness and that's the kind of oh, you're not saying anything new, it's not something special, it's not really important, or you're just being bitter, and just like not taking your criticism seriously. So it kind of gives people the permission to just roll their eyes and and not really grapple with the substance of the criticism. Or, or uh, act harmed by it. And I'm not just talking to, about myself, I'm talking about anybody who has spoken up about the kind of censorious nature of the culture and their own self-censorship, anything from the Harper's letter to um, various various um, articles that people have published talking about this. Um, it's not that it's dismissible. It's that somehow um, it's, it's offensive, like as if it's somehow doing harm to point these things out. And and getting back to your question about whether cancellation is a real thing, it's absolutely yeah. a real thing. Oh no, 100%. I wasn't doubting that it's a. Uh, there was doubting that it's a real thing. I was doubting what the term is, is useful for. I have no doubt that cancellation is a thing, and we have long running um, arguments on this pod for me being like, no, 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 it's something that should be taken very, very seriously. But the but I do find it difficult to kind of draw the line of what is, what isn't, where where something really is culturally corrosive and where something is just uh uh, you know pushback right when when every pushback can immediately turn into a twitter mob because that's what the current state of technology combined with human nature uh uh, enables right now and it just becomes difficult to draw a line between what's a a backlash that went out of hand or uh, an actual fundamental problem that we have with uh, Mm -hmm. growing illiberalism and censoriousness so that that's what what I'm trying to to get at. Not at all to dismiss. Like I just take for granted that there is a there, that we have a problem with cancel culture. So my question is like, way you 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 took yourself out of the, the equation of of being canceled. You said I, I wasn't canceled. With this. No. So the, right, no. right. So you have an idea. You have a model in your mind of what the line between being canceled and not being canceled is. So I just I, I'd like to hear that. Well, I mean, just speaking for myself, I still. I still walk the earth. I, I still have a career. I've, I've pivoted in my career, but I think that's mostly just because of the business model has changed. It's really, it's not like I'm being prevented from saying anything. Uh, I mean, I could say whatever I want. That doesn't mean that the, the old places are going to publish it, but there are plenty of places where I can, you know, I could put up a blog post. I could put something on medium. I could do whatever I want. So, um, it's, uh, you know, I, I think that it's mostly um, that increasingly there there are certain um, there are certain talking points that you have to adhere to. There are certain kinds of um, there's there's a party line that has to be towed. And that 
if, if you stay within those bounds, you will consistently write for the New York Times. You will be covered on NPR. You will be um, considered for certain prizes. You will be invited to lecture at certain places. And if you're out of those bounds, you won't be. However, increasingly, lots and lots of people are out of those bounds. More journalists and writers and thinkers are stepping out of those bounds every day. So I think pretty soon we're going to see a kind of recalibration. So when you're when you're making this, so you write your book and then you're pivoting to this podcast. That that's then. Wait, wait, wait. Not, are, are you changing the subject? No, it's in it's in reflection. Oh, it's in to reflection this, to, to this. what okay. you said. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I I'm, I'm I love wondering. that there's two of you. This is like when I when I ask my questions, I have this all going on in my head. Like, wait, why did you ask? Why did you back up, lady? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, sorry. we're constantly doing back up. Wait, go okay. back. Wait, go okay. forward. Um, it, so, are you are you reflecting on the experience of the book, and you're thinking not not so much like, oh, I'm not going to be accepted if I write another book. Uh, I'm not going to be in the kind of the mainstream what it, narratives that um, that would get the the accolades that I would have gotten before. Therefore, I'm going to opt to do something more independent in the podcast? It's kind of like preempting cancellation in a mm. way. Was that, was that kind of like your thought no, process? No, no, no. I had <laughs> wanted to do a podcast for a really long time. And um, I mean, it's mostly like, let's just, we'll just get back to the, I just want to make something really clear about the book. I mean, I was interviewed by NPR for the book. It was reviewed in places. I it, In no way was this a, a, a canceling event. The book was polarizing and it was nuanced and it was uh, a little bit complicated for, for people. And it, it, you know, it, it made a lot of new, I found a lot of new readers and it disappointed some old readers. That's really the extent of it. Um, you know, I, I'm not canceled. I just reviewed a book for the New York times book review a few weeks ago. Like in no way am I persona non grata in any sort of meaningful way. I just want to be really clear about that. Um, what I don't get is you know, I, I used to do a lot of um, speaking events. Let's just put it that way. I don't get invited to those anymore, but that could be because of the pandemic. That could be because of my demographic. There could be a million reasons for that. And it might not have to do with my um, with my sort of ideology, which, by the way, hasn't changed. I mean, the problem with everything is my most gentle, least least controversial book that I've ever written. I mean, I mean, that's what's amazing is that like mm. I have been so much more kind of in your face and 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 uh, counterintuitive uh, in the past. Uh, so let's yeah, that's another kind of strange aspect to this. But um, no, the podcast, I'm the biggest cliche in the world. I started the podcast during the pandemic when everybody right. else started a podcast including and, us. Yeah. Yeah. And um it was because I had always wanted to do an interview show. I love interviewing people. I I used to do a lot of it on, you know, on stage. I would do live events and I I love talking with people and I was just, you know, again, frustrated that there were topics out there that um were either not being covered in the mainstream sphere or being covered in this kind of didactic overly dogmatic way in the so-called alternative media space. So I just, I had my ideas about how to do things right. And so I wanted to, to do that. What are topics that you, you currently hold as the interesting ones, the, the ones that aren't mm. being talked about? Well, I have done a lot of stuff about um, gender ideology because that's something that 
I think um, is incredibly nuanced, incredibly, incredibly complicated, and that nobody is getting right for the most part. Um, it's being uh, reduced to uh, it's 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 really being oversimplified on the left and the right, uh, and and I think that a lot of the the usual suspects, people who have been talking about it, um, with, who have big platforms when they're talking about it, I think they they do a good job up to a point, but um, I still want more nuance there. So I've done a number of interviews on that subject, and I bring in people who I think can can really speak to this um, in a way that's productive and and informed. So that's something. Uh, what else? I mean, I've done, I, I did um, an interview about incels. Um, that's a topic that I think um, is poorly understood and has been misrepresented in the media. This, you know, in, incel stands for involuntary celibate. And it's this kind of subculture, sort of Reddit culture of um, mostly young men online who feel that they, um, you know, they just haven't, they haven't had luck with women romantically. And so, you know, and there's all kinds of men in this space and they have, a, a, you know, a variety of, of gripes and they're, you know, they're, it's, it's pretty diverse actually, but um, somewhere along the way it got reduced to um, a terrorist organization, almost a, a hate group. And um, that's really not the case. So I had um, a woman named Nama Cates on the show who has a podcast called Incel um, and she's really, really interesting the way she talks about this phenomenon. So, you know, for instance, we I did an episode on that. So things like that. This is a nice example because incels are one of those cultural phenomenons that come into the spotlight when some event calls for it. Like, I, I, what was it? There was a... Yeah, there um, was the, um, attack. the was attack. Yeah, that was the um, Alex Minician. I can't remember how to pronounce his name. But yeah, there was that was Yeah, it was like, like a truck. Yeah. Uh, it was a van. It was, I think it was a van. He rammed a van into a bunch of people. Right. Know. Suddenly the word incel was in public attention and then completely colored by that experience because that is incel incel is basically the jihadists of sex or something right <laughs> yeah right and then right. just as quickly basically all interest in the subject disappeared and it's telling because it's a media culture that loves excoriating others whenever they seem to be employing cheap stereotypes or oversimplified narratives about other cultures and communities right, right. but if it's a community that runs afoul of media narratives like incels were poster children for toxic masculinity. So in this case, oh, let the stereotypes and oversimplification go wild. And the thing is that after that moment, I don't think you saw any serious coverage of incel culture um, in the media. Uh, and I guess I'm partly to blame because I didn't show any interest uh, in it. And I think I was working at CNN at the time, so I'm really to blame. <laughs> well, you got to get some new hobbies. What can I say? <laughs> and I actually knew a guy who self-identified as an incel and I guess I never took it seriously at the time. I always saw it as more of kind of a, you know, like men rights curious type, you know, maybe being a little bit provocative intentionally. But, you know, I guess it shows how easy it is to not take subcultures seriously, subcultures mm -hmm. that you don't understand. Yeah, and it's always more complicated. I mean, obviously, if you are going to commit a mass act, an act of mass violence, you've got a lot going on. There's a lot of stuff wrong with you. Right. And it's right. not just being an incel. Like <laughs> that's, right. you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. So mm. um, let's, let's be serious here, you know? Right. And whatever the reality is, 
it probably being an incel probably means more to the the person who identifies as that than just you know I'm just going to open up all my bottled up grievances, find the first beauty parlor, and shoot up some Asian women. Right. However absurd or repugnant or weird you might find the internal logic of these communities, it's probably more complicated than you think, and it's definitely worth understanding. Yes. Well, and it's necessary to understand it. I would right. say. Because if right. you want to do anything to try to mitigate it, you have to understand what it actually is. Right. Right. Whereas the typical, I guess, left-leaning response would just to be to essentially a, not not just ignore, but like uh, kind of relegate it to a, a kind of fringe element of like dangerous and just therefore like let's like let's just not talk about it at all because it's just this is beyond the pale. We're not going to talk about it. This is like don't even ask what it is. It's just bad. And then right. that's reductionist. And, and to be fair, reductionism is by no means solely the purview of the left. No, 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 no. No, no, not. the right, the right uh, is much better at it and uh, gets a lot more traction out of it. Right, exactly. It's uh, it's the the entire business model of right-wing media exactly. for the past right. 30 right. years. Exactly, right. exactly. We- it's just... It's more predictable when it comes from the right and it's more embarrassing because there's a self-righteousness and a pretend pretension to not be doing that on the left. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, we expect more from the left. And, no, the and le- the but it- the left expects more of itself, just not not even us. Like I, I always say, like, yeah, we, we expect more of the left, which is absolutely true. But but also the left pretends to be more than that. The right does not pretend to be above otherizing people, right? <laughs> the left does. The, the left talks about otherizing as if that's a bad thing. Mm. And then yeah. deploys its own version of it. Right. And, and the left, you know, basically controls the culture. It controls, mm. you know, the, the sensibility of, of liberalism, or what we used to think of liberalism, progressivism, that is the dominant one in, in the entertainment industry, in academia, in the arts, in culture, right. right? And in most news organizations. So, you know, the, the Republicans may be in control politically, um, especially on state levels, but the, the left controls the culture. And mm. so um, that's pretty powerful. Though I right. wonder and how much uh, with that control, it's a question that's now being tested. How much is that cultural control real? And, or how much is it just a control of certain centers of institutional power? But, but the culture itself, if we think of it more democratically, I, I, I hardly believe really falls behind what coastal progressives see as their their lot star. And, you know, defund the police is, is the classic example or school masking or so many things that were taken as progressive right think in the past two years when put to the test, mm-hmm. the culture rejected. Yeah, uh, it, it, with those examples. Yeah, I mean, those are pretty those are pretty easy to reject at the end of the day. But, you know, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about you know, stuff like the homeless situation. I mean, you have massive, massive, you know, influxes of, of homeless people, people on the streets um, in places like Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, and that's because of, of, of local politics. That's because of policy that's being made on a local level by progressive uh, officials. And it, that's, I think, something that really needs to be explored, um, you know, yeah, it's the failure of democratic institutions. Yeah, and that exactly, and it has real, real impact. I mean, you know, I I have been living in New York City for the last five years. When I 
when I came back to New York, I, I lived there in the 90s and then I was in Los Angeles for a long time. But when I came back to New York in 2015, it was like Disney World. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, I, you know, the, the New York of the 90s was absolutely gone. Um, it had been radically changed by, you know, Michael Bloomberg and just the, you know, the, a different kind of local uh local administration. And, um, by the time I left a couple months ago, it was, it, it, it was incredible. I mean, there were people, there was, the crime was rampant, homeless people everywhere, people on the subway, people being pushed on the subway. And, you know, this is nothing new people, people, I'm not saying anything people haven't heard mostly, but, um, this is because of the way decisions are being made um, a, along progressive lines. And it's no surprise that now there's a mayor who's very, very different than that. <laughs> People don't like it. But I do think, I guess my point is that it, it does have effects. I mean, you know, the defund the police is kind of a joke, but when you have, you know, policy, you know, happening that is making, you know, causing there to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of homeless people, um, you know, with massive major psychiatric problems and doing drugs on the street, that has, that's a real thing. It reminds me, I tweeted uh, a couple of weeks ago, a, a headline from the New York times. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It's, it was something like mayor Adams, Eric Adams and to whoever is not paying attention to New York politics. He was obviously still a Democrat, but much more moderate, certainly conservative on issues of policing. He came from the police. Yeah. And as, as Megan said, New York in the past two years has experienced a massive jump in crime rates. A friend of mine was, ju was just punched in the face while walking home through the subway the other day. Oh it's like gosh. it's a story that everybody just is experiencing now constantly. And this was not the case only three years ago. So the New York Times published a headline that was something like, sorry, I can't say it without laughing. Eric Adams ran on fighting crime. Now, two weeks into his tenure, um, crime still hasn't decreased or something. Like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> recall. We need a recall immediately. Yeah, yeah. I think my tweet was something like, Eric Adams ran on fighting crime, the rapid increase of which has been consistently denied on these very pages. Right. It's crazy. Like the New York Times has published so many op-eds in the past two years combating people who were talking about the rise in crime as if they are just playing into conservative uh, talking points. As well, if as it's, if it's racist to talk about rising crime. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that, that's the insane thing because you know that this is this is the sort of thing that are, is not going to go well with anybody except for the people writing those op-eds because the pe people are going to read it and say, no. That's enough. Yeah, yeah. To people who are actually worried about leaving their house, it doesn't matter how you're going to package your story. They're not going to give a crap. But I, I do think that there's a difference, like what Megan was talking about, the left kind of controlling the cultural narratives, right? As opposed to, I think when, I think people are quite fed up with liberal policy because they're being, they're proving out to be quite ineffective. Things like the homeless, the way that they're tackling homelessness, like liberal cities are just getting overrun right now and clearly aren't prepared to to deal with the the ways of the influx of growth of, of gentrification of rising prices. So, but there's a division there between that I'm seeing between like policy and cultural narratives. There seems to be much more straightforward acceptance of left leaning cultural narratives as opposed to left leaning policies that are that one can witness in their day to day life as ineffective. 
Am I am I wrong there? Until these cultural things start running against your real life, because when until you, until right, then, no, yes. but that's the thing. But that, I'm not sure if that's happened yet uh, for most. But people. I think so. For instance, with racism, after George Floyd, people were happy to accept whatever convention or doctrine was publicly uh, presented as the adequate academic definition of who or what constitutes racism. That's why Robin D'Angelo had a moment. But the moment that you start calling people racist for um, talking about crime in their neighborhood, when those neighborhoods are often, you know, um, majority Asian or majority Hispanic and, you know, almost entirely uh, working class neighborhoods, and you're saying that they're racist for worrying... This is when your quote-unquote cultural tropes run against people's reality and they're like, you know, you know what, go fuck yourselves. There, there is a huge division in newsrooms between the older co- cohorts who really have, have, you know, ideas about journalism that are pretty consistent with, you know, what we have historically viewed as the role of journalism, which is to, to find out the facts, um, and younger cohorts who really see it as a form of activism. Um, and they truly believe it. I don't think they're disingenuous. Um, but, you know, what we have all over the place, I don't know of a single newsroom who isn't just mightily struggling with this right now, right. Um, is real sense that the that the younger, uh, you know, that the, the younger reporters and editors um, not only feel very strongly about this, they know that they have a lot of power now. I mean, all they need to do is accuse the older people of being bigoted in some ways and the older people will, will fold. I mean, they're, they are scared. They're, they're terrified of, you know, being accused of something, being accused of being racist or just being painted that way. And, you know, you, you can lose your job over that. And that, that is, you know, that's, I'm not saying losing your job in and of itself is cancellation, but losing your livelihood is pretty, pretty close. You you had a quote in a in an in a, some sort of interview that I read, um, I think in maybe Reason, um, and you said if 2018 was the year that the concept of cancel culture went mainstream, then 2019 may be the year that cancel culture cancels itself. So clearly, that was a little bit of a accelerated t- timeline, maybe optimistic <laughs> yeah, prediction. I think it was there. a while ago. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> how, right, I know. Ugh, how yeah. do you see? I mean, do you see this? Do you see that still though as the inevitable conclusion though? Like, even if it will happen, if not, you know, this year or next year that it will cancel culture will have to cancel itself oh god i don't know i mean i had to write a new forward for the paperback edition to the problem with everything and Mm. yeah i said you know i I, it was really like oh god you know when the pandemic started i thought okay great this goes back to my earlier question yeah 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 yeah. i was like great great because because now we have a real problem on our hands like we've got this the stakes are real here um and so we let's let's move away from uh from the culture wars and, like, <laughs> you know, actually tackle this. And of course, you know, fool, fool me five times. If anything, the target <laughs> started moving even faster, yeah, yeah, right? Like if you yeah. had been writing this over the pandemic, good Lord, it would have been, it would have had oh. to be a blog, right? Like how do you even crystallize that into a book? No, form? I know. I mean, it, uh, there's so much. And the thing is like, especially now with Trump gone, all the energy that went into blaming him for everything and obsessing about him and just making him the boogeyman for every possible aspect of life, you take that away and you've got to put that energy onto something else. Um, so, you know, it's now it's just like people who, you know, the, you know, the, the fact that we're still, you know, demonizing people for their opinion about masks, it's just, 
I, this, <laughs> if Trump were still around, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying. It's such, it's such a mess. I, I honestly, like I, I was an opinion columnist at the LA times for 10 years. I have basically been writing opinions on a deadline for most of my decades long career. I am so happy not to be doing it anymore. Honestly, I just, I, I, I think that increasingly, you know, like, like I say in the, in the book, you know, if, if you're not conflicted, you're either lying or you're not very smart. And I, everything is just so, I'm so conflicted about everything that I don't think I, I, I'm not a very good pundit these days. This is such a good line. And I think I've previously conveyed similar sentiments, but probably with more uh, swear words. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because for us, when in, in this conversation and implicit in the names of our respective podcasts, the, the whole point of being conflicted, of, of looking into the, the, the paradoxical and unresolvable nature of things is where things are interesting and where things are worthwhile. It's right. It, when things are resolved, like, you know, the laws of gravity, that's not... <laughs> not that's so a, fast, mister. <laughs> gravity, gravity is, uh, I think that's, that's, that's part of the, uh, that's part of the cis-hetero, that's part of the cis-hetero <laughs> patriarchy, don't you know? Gravity, that's, 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 that's uh, white supremacy. That's, gravity is white supremacy. That's true. It's, it relies, on, no, it relies on math and, and math is... A, <laughs> that's right is a white uh, artifact. But um, yeah, so, so aside for white artifacts like mathematics, my point about resolved things is when something is actually resolved, it's usually less interesting. Yeah. Uh, presumably people who go into journalism are driven by curiosity and wanting to explore things. That's, you know, people <laughs> like to tag writers like you as, as uh, provocateurs because you go and find conversations that are that are at the edges of accepted yeah. debate. But that that's the point. Curiosity leads you to explore the taboos and try to understand them, not necessarily to legitimize all of it, but at least to understand what's going on there. Yeah. Something that I, I grew up taking for granted as the role of a journalist. I want to right. see those those dark recesses of human behavior. But at the same time, it just seems that there is uh, closing of ranks around certain ideologies and certain positions, which become increasingly inflexible. Right. It's a badge of honor to stick to your guns, no matter how much reality is changing around you. I don't know if it's social media or what, but it's a general shrinking of minds. Yeah, that's very well put. There's a closing of ranks around certain ideas. I mean, but it's like what you're saying, you know, I became a writer because I wanted to explore counterintuitive ideas. I wanted to be surprising. And that was the job. Like I was rewarded for that. And my, I, I got traction in my career by writing essays that sort of invited my reader to think alongside me as I kind of sorted through ideas in a, in a, in a new way or surprising way. If it's never about being right, I'm never, I'm not really interested in making an argument. I'm interested in inviting my reader to come with me. It's an offering, not an argument. It's a suggestion. And uh, that was like the name of the game up until six or seven years ago. And now it's like the opposite of, of the job. And so that that's the thing. It's like, I, I find it amazing because if anybody, you know, my book, The Unspeakable, which the podcast is actually named after my the book I published in 2014, an essay collection called The Unspeakable, you know, that has some really, you know, raw stuff in there. Like that's, there's got some, there's some difficult material in there. 
And it's like people love that book. The the people who, you know, who can't stand me now um, are like fans of that book and and remain so. And I I want to say, like, have you like opened that book lately? Because <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't like it if it was published now. You'd hate it. But it like won awards. I, it's it, it's crazy. <laughs> To be fair, the the people who are really, really into hunting people's past or sifting through people's past, they would happily go back to, to the unspeakable and find the right lines and then share it. Well, I know well, she told us who she was back in 2014. Exactly. So, I, I mean, something that Adam and I have been thinking about a lot is this idea of like where where we are at as a culture, but potentially in the wake of the withdrawal of religion actually so we've been we've been thinking about this as like can we draw a line to the 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 decline of religion in american society to this kind of sense of loss of meaning this sense of this kind of void in people's lives not just on a spiritual level but on like a communal level um and and can we locate some of the the behaviors that we're seeing in that sense of loss and searching um, and so that can be kind of like holding on to political narratives, kind of groups uh, clinging on to this kind of black and white thinking. Um, and I'm just curious to get your read on on this idea that we've been toying with. Like, it, do you do you also sense that there's kind of a deeper de- the kind of spiritual and, and social kind of depravity happening that is is perhaps at the root of some of what we're seeing. Depravity days. in the sense of deprivation, right, right. Not right, right. in the sense of moral. Yeah, uh, well, correct, there's, a, there's a de- depravity of meaning. I mean, yeah. there's a, mm-hmm. um, yeah, or, 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 you know, the legitimacy crisis. I like to think of it that mm-hmm. way too. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny. I, I, I feel like I asked this exact question to somebody I had on my podcast and mm-hmm. it was like, <laughs> it was somebody who, it was it was appropriate to ask them that this question. I don't know if they were a religious. They, I mean, I want to say maybe it was John McWhorter because he always talks about how you know w- wokeness is is a new religion. Mm. And I maybe I right. asked him like if he thought that this was because of a kind of poverty of of you know you know a, a lack of meaning coming from from traditional religion. And I, I think I, whoever it was, I don't remember. This is, this is great, huh? Great answer. I, if 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 it was him, whoever it was, they said no. They they said huh. the answer to that question is no. And that's that's you know, it's kind of that would be a kind of convenient um narrative, but that, that wasn't really the case. Now, I don't I, I'm like not somebody who thinks about religion a lot. I did not grow up with any religion. Uh I think of this more in terms of loneliness. Mm-hmm. I think people do this because they're lonely and they want affiliation. Now, you mm-hmm. could call that tribalism. That's another word that is in heavy rotation in this in this ecosystem. But um I think they just want to feel like they're they're part of a group and that their their friend group um accepts them and that they're in good standing. It's it's like a club, really. I mean, maybe it's it's not just that that there's a lack of religious um practice. In, in the West, it's maybe it's that there's not like clubs. I'm honestly thinking out loud here. Like, is this replacing, you know, the Girl Scouts and then the Explorers the, Club? Yeah. Or is it, is it replacing like, um, 
you know, people would have, you know, or like you're in like the the Masons or like the Elks Club or the Women's Club, the League of Women Voters. I mean, and the thing is, people do have book clubs, but I hear from so many, um, a lot of the people who write to me, it's funny, um, Hmm. especially especially the women, because I have a lot of women writing to me and saying like, God, I thank you for doing what you do. And I just feel like I've alienated my friends, like, you know, heterodox thinking in my world is, um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of it. And a lot of it is stuff that started that, that, you know, disagreements that came up in book clubs. (laughs) Right. Oh, I believe that. No, I 100% believe that. Mm -hmm. Because books bring out like all these complicated, difficult topics. And it's generally a group of women, women, uh, mothers for the most part, but not necessarily. Uh, who, who are drinking, are, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> There's always <laughs> alcohol of, involved. Very likely. Uh, and maybe baked goods, whatever it might be. But like I, I, often who who stick to the script, right? And who believe yeah. and defend the script. Mm. Um, and it's not really about having deep, meaningful conversations about the book. That's kind of like potentially like 10%. And so I could totally (laughs) imagine that being that one woman there who wants to like dig in and uncover and discuss and being just completely shut down and anathema. Yeah, you don't understand what this community is about. It's not really about the text of the book. Right, read the room. Read Read the the room. room. Like that, that's a horrible expression that I, it's, I hear it more and more. Like, you know, the, the real crime was that, you know, this person didn't read the room. You know, we're going after this person in their in their job and digging up dirt on them, you know, not necessarily because they they did anything actually actionable, but that we don't like this person because they don't read the room. But that's the thing, like you would think you'd think that the book club could be a place where you can meet with people and discuss real things and without fear of censor censorship or censure from the others around you. And it's actually not. We're just replicating the yeah. same beats and uh, uh, and rules, essentially, of like the Twitterverse right. in in real life. So then, like, th- there's this "where do you go" feeling. Right? I'd say the Twitterverse is replicating the 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 small suburb, hmm. you know, the um, uh, Calvinist community where everybody is 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 looking at each other's windows and and judging their every minute's behavior mm. you know the panopticon is is very real and important for some communities and it keep that's what keeps them together it keeps them in order it's the the origin of nimbyism is 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 right. that, that property value but then it turns into the next door site right mm. right 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 and then and, and then twitter <laughs> yeah. twitter makes it into like the next continent uh you're right, starting to right. judge people in the other side of the world for not living by your own group standards and norms. Which brings us back to my problem with social media is that it gave scale to one of the least charming aspects of, hmm. of human um, yes. social building. Uh, right. But it's also, again, I think this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Is this just human nature? Like, can you socially engineer tribalism out of a human civilization. Right. Well, we just had this the conversation with uh, Jacob Mishangama about free speech, and we had this, we kind of hit on this point again and again and again, which is free speech is not natural. <laughs> it is not, it, humans mm. are not good at it, and we've had to create kind of institutions, cultural values that reinforce it, um, but if you don't do all those things, it falls apart very, very quickly. And he he kind of shows throughout history all the times that free speech has has just crumbled upon pressure. 
Um, and, but it, that's kind of what societal values are a lot. It's just, it's just things that are in the ether that we have to continually bolster. Right. Otherwise, they, yeah, that's kind yeah. of all it is. Yeah. Which is scary. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, people, there are more of these communities coming up, you know, as sort of alternative to the, to your like, you know, local book, you know, your, your, your regular mm-hmm. book club, you know, there are communities like, like Persuasion, there's Heterodox Academy, there are um, Heterodox. Your Patreon. Yeah. Your, your and and actually, listening. yeah. And actually one of the things I really want to do, and I'm working on this is um, creating a Heterodox community for women because it's a very male dominated space. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I'm interested in obviously like everybody, but I get so many women, uh, coming to me and saying like, I feel like I can't, I I feel like I've lost friends and, and women are much more sensitive to the social penalties of speaking out, um, than, than men are on balance, on balance, not all, not everyone. But, um, I think that, that this kind of dissident thinking plays out differently in, female groups than it does in male groups or mixed groups. Interesting. Would you want to expand on that a little? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, this, this idea, I mean, just, there aren't a lot of women in the kind of, um, you know, whatever IDW heterodox hmm. space. There's like Barry Weiss. Um, there's Katie Herzog. There's me. There's, uh, you know, there's there's a handful of us, but it's way 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 male dominated. I mean, there's you know, there's Sam Harris and there's the Weinstein brothers and there's like you know go go down the list. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few women, and I I think you know this is something that I actually talked with Heather Hying about. She was the first guest ever on the Unspeakable podcast, um, and we talked about why that might be. You know, at that time when I had her on in it was two. 2020 that I started the podcast um, day. I, you know, I, I would like to know how many podcasts launched on like January, July 27, 2020. I, I don't know why the internet didn't like shut down. Like, oh, it's like 55,000 new podcasts today. Uh, you know, at that time, you know, she and Brett were doing the Dark Horse podcast. They were on, they were gaining massive traction talking about COVID <laughs> in, in a way that was really interesting and productive at that point. Uh, and, but you still would Google her name and she would come up as Brett Weinstein's wife. Hmm. And, um, you know, we talked about why that might be. And, you know, we just you know, I said, like, is there, is there a reason, you know, women are sort of inclined to smooth over a social situation. We're not going to be the ones that disrupt the dinner party by saying, oh, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's not that simple folks. And, you know, risk making people feel uncomfortable. I think, we're just less likely to be willing to do that. And those of us who are willing to do it, there's maybe something, you know, we're, we're outliers. Um, so anyway, that, that's something I, I think about a, a lot. Um, and I, is, and is, I, it, is yeah. it internal or do you feel that like there's also some or, or experience some stigma against it's always being the both. person? Again, you know, it's so hard to know. I mean, this is like a lot of these uh, evolutionary psychology conversations. You know, the reason Evo Psych has such a bad reputation is because it just gets bastardized and reduced and weaponized to silliness. But there's there's validity there. I mean, you know, we we are our, our brains respond, you know, society, societal norms get set up because there is some kind of biological imperative that's, you know, governing a lot of our behavior. I think that, um, you know, for, for instance, like there's this idea that 
women are treated badly on social media, that, that women are, um, you know, receive more threats or, you know, are, are somehow, you know, it, it's dangerous for them to be on social media. And that's actually, I, I'm pretty sure that the data shows that that's not true. Um, it's that women are more sensitive to being attacked on social media. You know, I would have assumed. So I don't, I don't know which which one is true, but it, even if it, if even if we take it for granted that it's the same amount of trolling, but my assumption would be just that it's a different type. Like women are going to be attacked for different types of things than mm. men are. Is right. my assumption. Like I think, uh, I think, I think we talked to Lindsay Ellis about this too. It's like you might just be like, you're ugly and fat, go die. Yeah. versus if it's a dude, it's like, I hate you, go kill it yourself. Or, it's or like, like you're, you know, or emasculating men. I mean, right, you know, right, call, right. you know, being homophobic. Right. Um, I mean, there's all, it's like, I just, there's millions I, of ways to be nasty. I, I, there's yeah. millions of ways. And I mean, it's like, just because men and women don't suffer oppression in the same ways, doesn't mean we both don't suffer oppression. I mean, I remember saying just very casually to my, some grad students one day, I said, you know, historically, it was just assumed that a lot of women were going to die in childbirth and a lot of men were going to die in wars. Like, and they were like, what? They, they had never thought about that. But the idea that um, there could be something that, uh, that, that was, you know, a, a real injustice, you know, that, that men would be burdened with something um, just systemically that, that was so violent and dangerous and you know, unfair, um, that, that never crossed their mind. Right. Well, that also goes on the, uh, the tangent of the, the peace privilege that I think is, a is a big issue with kind of our cultural, um, Oh know, yeah. I've never stupidity. heard that expression before, but yeah, that makes, uh, I mean, I, yeah. I literally just coined it, but brilliant. <laughs> oh my God. Get on that now. I, I mean, coming from coming from Israel, I think that's yeah. that's something that's very, very like obvious when you see it, and and especially talking about uh, like in recent events and in 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 kind of the the cultural response to Ukraine, um, just to to hijack the conversation there for a second. Um, it's the way that the American conversation about Ukraine is being is being handled is basically the textbook definition of my little sniglet. The, what I call peace privilege. You, you're talking about sanctions um, as the, the way they would talk about trying to cancel Tucker Carlson, right? Mm, right. The, the, both from the right and the left. Like the right is complaining that they're trying to cancel Russia and, and the left literally is trying to cancel Russia. But no, nobody really has any perspective in terms of what war really entails or yeah. what are the consequences of not getting involved in a meaningful way because just the idea of actually having security and safety Real safety, not not imagined safety, or not like you made us watch Team America and it made us feel unsafe. <laughs> uh, kind of safety, but real. Those are all those are all war survivors that were right. in that class. So, yeah, very, very much so. That it's something that just n does not really exist in in people raised in yeah. in current um, liberal societies. That's because of the success of liberal societies. It's a good thing. Exactly. Exactly. But but it's uh, you know it's coming to bite them in the ass, culturally, psychologically. Yeah, I'm, 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 um, I mean, obviously I'm following, I'm reading everything I can about the Russia-Ukraine situation, but I, I do not, I am not going, going to opine on that. Hmm. Like there's, there's nothing I can say that, um, you know, hasn't been said and better. I just, yeah. No, yeah, no, I, I, I also have no 
idea what the right thing to do I wouldn't dare to presume but there's the I don't know show you just lost like <laughs> hundreds of listeners yeah. but you don't know you're not gonna say anything you've done uh, goodbye yes yeah, like I'm just embarrassed by the way that the conversation is being mm. um, run last week the news coverage was dominated by celebrating all the chains that were leaving Moscow as oh bravo the brave exodus brave of H&M. corporate America. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Oh God. There was a moment I, I, uh, in time where you, if you go through all the big news websites, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, uh, Politico, The Hill, the first story you'd see would be McDonald's and Starbucks join chains in leaving Russia. Wow. The, Putin really should have thought it through. He really did. <laughs> yeah, right. This will get him. <laughs> and that's what drives me crazy. It, this is the only way, the only prism through which we can talk about anything these days. It's not about lives being sacrificed. It's not about the values that we are trying to preserve. It's not about um, the global order. It's not about um, what we're passing on to future generations. It's about who's banning who, what corporation is on which side, and who's getting to score more political points. That's it. Okay, before we uh, run out of time, you mentioned the IDW as kind of a response to loneliness. Yeah. It's interesting because it goes to what Vanessa called it religion or the absence of religion. I would probably call it our cultural absence of purpose or meaning or community. Um, religion is just one form of it that I think just dominated American culture throughout history, but but other cultures find, find that kind of group purpose in different ways. Um, but you were describing how in, in, the, in the mid-2000s, going through your own um, travails, you found meaning, comfort, and emotional substance in all those heterodox communities, something that went beyond people who are talking about something that others don't touch, but more personal, right? So can you talk about it a little bit? Assuming that it doesn't bore you to talk about it for like the nth time. <laughs> no, so as long as it doesn't bore everybody else. So um, yeah, I, I got, sep- I was separated from my husband in 2015. And, you know, for all of our problems, in the marriage, we were really intellectual allies. Um, we, we, we still are. He, he was just over. I'm dog sitting the, the dog as we speak, but, um, uh, you know, we, we really, you know, both, both journalists, we were very much on the same page about a lot of these issues. Um, and, and we really thought a lot of our friends were too, um, for a long time. And so, you know, the, the, when we split up, it happened to coincide with the time when a lot of these people that, you know, sort of, public thinkers and and journalists and media people were suddenly like lining up kind of just towing this very, very simplistic, progressive, um, identity based, uh, narrative. And, and I found myself feeling alienated from my, a lot of my friends. Um, and so, and, and certainly, and I didn't have my husband to come home and like, you know, talk to about all this stuff. So I found myself watching, uh, it started with Glenn, Lowry and John McWhorter on bloggingheads.tv. They would have these conversations um, about race, among other things, that were like riveting, just so nuanced. There's the word. Uh, and so I, I, I watched that and then the algorithm kind of took me along. I found hey, we did a good um, job surviving people. a whole conversation without saying nuance, I think. So good job. I think I might have said it before, but ah. yeah, you can you can bleep that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, you know what I found? It'd be funny if we bleeped nuanced and then kept as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) 
the unusable words are, uh, yeah. I think, heterodox, <laughs> nuance, and dangerous ideas. Those, I know. those are banned. But so, you know, new, you're, I have seen people, like, nuance has been weaponized now because I've seen people, like, associate the word nuance with some kind of, like, um, alt-right adjacent thing because, they, like, oh, another nuanced take. Like, <laughs> right, uh, right, like right, that's right. just a dog whistle for oh, the alt-right. Yeah. Right, you know, um, you know what other word starts with N, right? Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, there was a time where you had the memes of, like, like debate me was considered a right-wing trope, right? Right, come debate me. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's also it was very masculine. It was very violent. I think that was, it was like, um, that was something that Ben Shapiro would say a lot or, like, Dave Rubin. Uh, so, right. So, speaking of, yeah, so, so, right, just to go back. So, yeah, I found, like, Sam Harris and Dave Rubin at that time was having, um, you know, good conversations with people. Yeah, that moment uh, of his awakening from yeah, yeah. So, um, the Young Turks. Anyway, so yeah, I kind of stumbled into that that universe and um, I, I became, yeah, it was, it was, there was solace there and there was company. Um, and uh, I, I'm not alone in that experience. I mean, I wrote a big piece about it and many, many people have uh, said that they had a similar kind of journey. I was t- uh, telling you that um, in our, in our pre-interview call that, um, m- I just moved to New York around that same time, like 2015, 2014. And my mom, who had just broke up with her boyfriend at the time, was alone back in Jerusalem. And I was here alone in uh, this this awful city that I call home. And it, <laughs> that was the moment that I, I basically discovered podcasting. Partly was because of Vanessa's uh, influence, malign influence on me. <laughs> but setting aside all the philosophical intellectual titillation that these conversations offered, they were just comforting. It was a cure to loneliness. I I wonder if there was just something at that moment that that coincided between uh, increase in solitude Mm. and a thirst for these um, contrarian conversations. I guess contrarian is also yeah, uh, and not and not not alone and also not crazy. Right, that's yeah. a right. big part of it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You could you yeah. could find you can find a, a voice that isn't um Rush Limbaugh, right? That to talk to you about those things. Yeah, or or also right, because a lot of it is sort of like, wow, am I crazy? Like, why are right. all my friends, like my mm-hmm. my female friends who, you know, we all grew up pretty much the same way and we used to make the same kind of jokes and talk about the same kind of things? How come all of a sudden they feel that they're living in a world that hates women? Why all of a sudden are they talking about feeling unsafe all the time? Am I nuts? And so it was really nice to find, um, you know, that I wasn't. <laughs> Just put it that way. So without, you know, obviously I don't want to put you in a spot. And if you don't want to answer, just also feel free and we can cut it out. <laughs> oh. We are now like five, six years, seven years, whatever, after that. And it feels like a lot of the of the voices that were of comfort and, and sense back then have kind of, as, as we spoke, like um, closed ranks uh, around uh, uh, certain ideologies and have become more inflexible, yeah. less open to actually having the, the, the sort of branded nuanced conversations of the 2014, 2015s. First of all, did you feel that? And if so, how does that affect you on the, on the, por- on the parasocial level? Yeah, well, um, it's funny. I just did an interview with David Fuller from Rebel Wisdom, uh, and he's been writing a lot about the IDW and he's been highly critical of um, people like, you know, Fred Weinstein and Heather Hying on the ivermectin stuff. And he's, you know, he's very rigorous about it, but I think he's burned, burned at least a few bridges. Um, 
you know, we talked a lot about how this has to do with audience capture. It really does. I mean, it's it's great to be an independent uh, journalist or have your own media platform and not rely on sponsors. But the problem with, you know, having your livelihood come directly from your audience is that then you have to keep giving your audience what they want. Um, so I, I think that, um, I, I keep saying, I feel like we're going to have a kind of heterodox 2.0, uh, start to come up. Um, people who maybe don't have such big audiences <laughs> were less captured. I mean, that's one nice thing. Like I have a, I have a nice audience and it's growing steadily, but it is not, stratospheric. I'm not Barry Weiss by any stretch. I'm not blocked and reported by any stretch. I'm not, you know, it's, and I'm not saying that, that either of those examples are really what you're referring to, but, um, I think that there's something nice about having a kind of quiet, um, ecosystem, at least in the beginning. And I do think that, that there is an audience out there for less didactic takes. I, most of my listeners say, we appreciate what you're doing. We appreciate that you're not throwing out the red meat. We appreciate that you're bringing on the guest that we haven't heard of rather than the usual person who's going to come on and talk about, you know, gender, for instance. So I am hopeful in that regard. And what about the emotional level? Did you feel something? Do, do you still feel something is missing? Because I remember, uh, I think leading up to the 2020 elections and maybe even after that, from my own perspective, the feeling of loneliness was absolutely oppressive and overwhelming on the parasocial mm. level. I, I couldn't find a, a reliable compass. I couldn't find somebody that I, I, I could reliably turn to as, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not insane. Wait, so are you saying that at that time there, there wasn't even like a podcast or YouTuber that you could go to for solace? Is that, is that what you're saying? I'm trying to just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. yes, yes. Oh, yes. wow. No, no, no. Cause that's God. Um, I mean, I, that's so interesting because maybe I, there's not like one, I'm not, I don't think I ever had like one person that I followed. I mean, I think if anything, John McWhorter, the way he talked about race gave me permission to talk about women in a certain way. Um, so, and I still, I, I think, you know, I, I said when I talked to Mike Pesca, like, you know, John McWhorter is like the, the, the person everybody kind of trots out. It's like, you know, he's like the Marshall McLuhan of, uh, of the, <laughs> of, of this, uh, sphere of, of influence. It's like, well, I happen to have John McWhorter right here. And he said, you know, you, you know, <laughs> nothing of what you speak. This is a reference to Woody Allen movie in case anybody doesn't know. Um, yeah. Uh, Annie Hall. Uh, so that's right. Uh, so I think, I, yeah, I think I pretty, you know, he, he, Sam Harris for the most part and John McWhorter, um, I think they're pretty solid with some blind spots. But yeah, I don't know. Okay, so I don't know if we have a hard out for this interview, but I do want to make sure that I ask you about humor. So I have this really less than half-baked sense that our society is hemorrhaging its sense of humor and irony and levity. Um, and as a result, everything is being absorbed with excess severity more than the subjects deserve. And I don't know if that's a legitimate concern or is it just me having been raised by Gen Xers so I, I deal with my problems by throwing irony at them? Oh, um... I mean, there is still, 
Huh. I mean, irony, again, I hate to be so like essentialist with talking about these generations because, oh God, sorry, these dogs. Um, you can just leave that. It's, this is, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that I, I mean, I don't know. Like South Park is still like the best thing going, you know? If if you want to feel not insane, you should just watch hmm. South Park. No, right, but that's but that's like, but that's a relic, I know, but, right? I know. No, it's still on. They're still making them. Yeah, but it's right. a relic in terms yeah, of it's no, exactly. a relic of a different time of telling stories and making jokes. It, like even Jon Stewart to some extent is that. It was a yeah. redolent of of a different cultural sensibility. But you can see the difference in late night shows and comedies and the tone of public social conversations irony which requires some self debasement is disappearing and instead we have a push for self-seriousness and gravitas and anger and panic and hysteria yeah well and it's literal yeah okay i know i I, I know what you're asking okay yeah these comedians there used to be an assumption that everybody was operating with a certain level of um irony uh, um, literacy, right? So, uh, and I and I don't. For some reason, that has fallen away. I think maybe sometimes people this in it, irony is interpreted as like a form of harm, or somehow it's like not inclusive because maybe some people don't get it. I mean, there used to just be an acceptance that a lot of people weren't going to get your joke. Like that was part of being a, a you know a creative person. Not everybody was going to get what you're saying. Your audience is your audience. It's not the whole world. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, people are still really funny in the back channels. Let's just put it that way. In the that's back the thing. Oh, that's, oh, right. that's the thing. I, yeah. I, find, I don't find that actually. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking about like relationships at work or whatever and just like, like I oh, feel that's like not a, a back channel. Of... That's not okay. a back channel. I mean, you know, I had, a, so when Mike Pesca was on the show, I asked him what it was like to work at NPR back in the huh. day and then in the nineties and the early aughts when he worked there and, you know, he called it an esprit de corps. Like there was a sense in the office, like, you know, that, that you would joke around and everybody right. kind of was on the same page. And, you know, there was a joviality to the office. And, I, you know, I, I if I ever was going to write a cultured piece again, maybe I would write about this. Like the whole genre of the office sitcom, you know, uh-huh. the, the, the workplace based sitcom that is is premised on people like you know, playing practical jokes on each other right. and making fun of each other and somebody being a fool and somebody being this somebody falling like, in love with somebody. Yeah. Else. And like that whole, the, that way of being in the workplace is no longer acceptable. Um, and it used to be, there used to be an incredible joy in, um, being, uh, uh, working around like-minded adults. Let's just put it that way. I mean, I remember the first time I worked in an, in a real office with, with adults, um, and I was like, this is fantastic. I, I just, I thought this, these people, I mean, everyone would just joke. Yeah. It was at, the, it was at the film society of Lincoln center. I was an intern during college and everyone was just, there was just this big office and everyone would just sit around and talk about films, but also just like say anything. And, you know, everybody, it was very sophisticated, but nobody took themselves too seriously. And it was great. Um, but that's not available anymore. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think you're right about that. When I say the back channels, I literally mean like, you know, when people get together for drinks or like 
text threads where they say the worst things. I mean, you know, like <laughs> there's there's plenty of um, there's plenty of at least Gen Xers. I will tell you that the Gen Xers <laughs> are plenty funny are when you're not dark, when you're not listening. Drinks. Yes, Hilarious when you're not discussion. when you're not listening, uh, it's uh, it's still pretty good. I, I love it. It's. <laughs> Gen Xers, if you're out there, invite us to your bars. Hey, funny and afraid. <laughs> funny and afraid. Yeah. Uh, we're not, we're not good right. enough. We, we know that we're not good enough at, at technology to know that we might be getting bugged <laughs> and, uh, and distributed. Um, so, yeah. It, uh, I, yeah, I am trying to think where, where if at all those back channels exist for, for our generation. Because I definitely not in any work environment that, that I had. Um, that's, I mean, that goes without saying, especially like when you work at CNN or, it, you know, something that was that shocked me in working in journalism in the U.S. Because I think I kind of had the the fantasy that you were describing in terms of what, what I would come into was be such this vibrant community of, of curious people who will be who were funny and, and, and um, irreverent. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, I found a lot of people who are politically dour and who talk about SNL. Uh. And the only people that I found that had the spirit of joyful and slightly self-effacing argument were the conservatives in the office. Some of them closeted conservatives. The conservatives are kind of have become more fun, haven't they? They're they're the fun ones. Can you believe that? Can, <laughs> I could that's like having been a teenager in the 80s, the conservatives <laughs> were the absolute stick in the mud church right. lady religious right. zealots banning all art nothing no humor allowed and it's like reversed now i gotta say that's why I, when conservatives start pushing their anti-crt laws or their sexual puritanism laws in florida I, i'm like oh whew, what a relief the world is back on its axis. I know they're back to their old selves. Like this, I understand. Order is restored. <laughs> right? Mm. Yes. Yeah, right. this I understand. Right. Conservatism is old puritanical scolds. I don't understand conservatism as an edgy subculture. That's too weird for me. Mm. Conservative. Right. It's, it's, it's also it's by definition it shouldn't be an edgy subculture. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I just find the general lack of humor in the public discourse to be disappointing. Lack of joy and disagreement. Lack yeah. of the joy of battle. Yeah. yeah. I guess that goes to the sense of threat that every interaction feels like it's a real yeah. threat. Makes right. makes it like, how can you joke about this? It's literally right. a life and death situation. It's not. But you know, even if we are losing the battle on one front or another, this is all the more excuse to have to have fun and joke about it. You know, my favorite humor is Holocaust humor. So come on, like just... That's what, this so, is, that was that old, that old Sarah Silverman joke. Is it, what, what, what did Jews hate most about the Holocaust? The cost. <laughs> no, gosh. <laughs> Remember that? That was that. She made that joke. She made that joke. I wonder, I wonder if she would make it today, though. <laughs> no, right. no, no. She has said she has like denounced a lot of her old wow. jokes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. All right. I, I shouldn't Shall have made we, that joke as a non-Jew. No, no, I'm no, sorry. No. You can take that out. <laughs> Adam's always in favor of Holocaust jokes. Yeah, I'm the, <laughs> the John McWhorter of Holocaust jokes. I give you permission. Now I extend that permission. is a brand. <laughs> I've never heard one. All right, Megan, our, our question that we like to ask as many guests as we can remember to ask them. Um, what do you see as the biggest blind spots 
uh, on the left and the biggest blind spots on the right. Oh, God. I thought you were going to ask me about my personal blind spots. Oh, well, you can add no, that God, on yeah, if you'd like. Surely you have none. Uh, um uh, oh gosh i mean blind spot uh on the on the left well you know what let me just say i don't know i'm i'm gonna my own blind spot is that uh i i am i have a sort of unusual sensibility like you know when i would say like oh you know women are you know we've never been doing better i don't know what you're talking about you know you feel like you're oppressed by the patriarchy it's it's nonsense you know that's because i have a particular kind of experience and um i, I am not I, i'm kind of an outlier like you know i'm not i was never a, a a girly girl i'm still not but you know i'm not i'm i'm a heterosexual woman i mean this but i i don't i don't have kids for instance i never wanted kids that gives me a huge economic advantage that gives me a huge professional advantage. There's a whole bunch of problems that I don't have to deal with because of that, for instance. So I'm really an outlier um, in a lot of ways when it comes to the female experience. I mean, I don't know, the, the blind spots of the left versus the right. I think it's really just toward each other. You know, a huge percentage of people on the right think that like most people on the left are in unions for instance, <laughs> like there's a, there's a massive misconception and a, and a lot of people on the left think that, you know, an enormous amount of people on the right are like evangelical Christians and, you know, n neither of those things are true. So I just think there's, there's just stereotypes that are, have become sort of, um, operating principles. Though we, um, on a podcast that I was uh, editing, I think it was uh, The Remnant, I was editing the other day and uh, talking about the question of, um, I think it was uh, regarding Obama's foreign policy that he had the tendency of of kind of trying to tell anybody who was negotiating with like what's good for them rather than trying to understand what was good for them. Like, I understand your interests better, trust me, and you should just do as I say. I think it was uh, with Shadi Hamid and Shadi Hamid said, uh, yeah, and that's generally a problem for the left, right? That the left tends to do that. And Jonah Goldberg, who's hosting the podcast, responded saying, that, yeah, it's it's something that I'd say that maybe both sides sometimes do. But I think that the the difference is that the the right, because it culturally it's been a, like a cultural minority, a beleaguered minority, had to fit into the liberal mainstream a little bit. And as a result they do a better job at actually approximating what a liberal thinks than a liberal does at understanding what a conservative thinks. I thought that was an interesting um, uh, thought. Don't know if I agree with it or not, but it's definitely true that being a cultural minority forces you to an extent to assimilate with the majority perception. Yeah. Well, I mean, the campus conservatives talk about, you know, just keeping their mouths shut, right? You know, a, a lot. And you'd you see it. They do. And they have to learn how to navigate. Ah, great, actually. Let's spend the remaining three minutes on this point. Um, <laughs> Self-censorship. Because that uh, you just alluded to the, I think, I assume, the, the article that was just uh, uh, published. Um, and uh, it was an interesting question. It was a question that um, I, I uh, despicably forgot to bring up with uh, Jacob Mishingama. And uh, what, what do you think about that? Is uh, it's it's a very difficult subject to kind of grapple with the idea of self-censorship because on, on the one hand, it really undermines the dream of having a free liberal society if there are some topics that we feel cannot be brought up. On the other hand, there will always be topics that, that are either taboo or that 
people are just not interested in hearing. Like my experience at CNN, like I mentioned, like I tried to bring in a topic. It's not like I was canceled. It's not, it's not like I was shut down, but just people were not, <laughs> were not interested in having those conversations. So like I, I self-censored in the sense that I realized that I don't have a partner for this discussion. But is that, is that really something worth the, the moral outrage that, that it seems to be getting? And maybe it is. Like I'm actually grappling with it. So Are you talking about Sarah Heppel's piece in yeah, the Atlantic? Yeah, that one too. I am going to be interviewing Sarah in an hour. So, oh, nice. Um, for, oh, wow. the, for the podcast, as it happens. Um, well, I know Sarah, and this is something that she and I have talked about for years in the back channels. Uh, I, I know what she's saying. I'm going to know more about what she's thinking after my conversation with her. But, I mean, just like, you know, more broadly, self-censorship is a spectrum, right? Like, there's the, there's self-censorship in the extreme, which is that I'm afraid to open my mouth and say anything. Um, and there's, like, you know, little bits of it where, you know, I know, like like what you're saying. Like, I know there's no point. I'm not going to... I'm not going to die on this hill or there's no point in bringing this up or there's not, I don't, you know, the, the people I'm with aren't interested in this topic. I mean, is it self-censorship if like I go to a party and people don't want to talk about um, what's, you know, what's about gender ideology? Like, it's like <laughs> I mean, I don't, that's not self-censorship. That's right. just like, you know, not, you know, trying to be socially, you know, normal. <laughs> so I, so I mean, uh, it's just, you know, the thing is everything's kind of a spectrum, right? So, and I guess censorship is, I have to, I would have to think about that. I think censorship is kind of a spectrum. Um, free speech is a spectrum. I mean, you know, so yeah, but, um, uh, you know, I, I do think I, I can tell you that there are a lot of journalists and writers that, we, you know, say, I really wish I could write about this, but it's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. And that's what Sarah's piece was about. Right. Um, there's also from a month ago, right? There's a, uh, what's her name on the New York times? Uh, Emma, oh, Emma. The, Camp? Um, uh, that was already a month ago. Gosh. Yeah. The UVA. Was it a month ago? Or yeah. was it, uh, this month I, I'm t- totally lost. What month is this? Is this, is this April? Is this well, March? I don't, I no I don't know going when on. you're going to post this, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I wonder just psychologically, I mean, of course, of course, there is a problem there in in terms of how it trickles down. But how do you, how how do we deal with this? Is is the solution just to keep talking about this and and kind of expressing our moral discomfort with the fact that people are self censoring? Because usually, I'm from the position of uh, most of our problems in the U.S. right now are are, are cultural problems in the sense that. It, it's not something that can be cured by policy. It's not something that can be cured by any like mandated behavior. It's something that requires a mind shift. Yeah, free speech is, as far as I'm concerned, 100% that. Like all all the laws in the world can protect free speech when you're culturally resistant to it. Right. When right. you're ostracizing people for speech crimes. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I don't know what that means in terms of our responsibility around this topic. Well, I. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what the stakes are. I mean, I've been guilty of saying to people like, you know, why don't you just, you know, man up and woman up, whatever, and like, say your piece. Why do you have to be such a coward? But, you know, again, I have a blind spot in that I don't like have a job, you know, <laughs> like, I don't, I, you know, if, if somebody gets mad at me, I, you know, nobody's going to fire me. I don't have a family that I'm dragging down with me. You know, I, I can afford, you know, I don't want to lose my livelihood, but like if mm-hmm. I was out on the street, it would just be me out on the street, you know what I'm saying? And my enormous <laughs> dog. But, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, 
this is what I try to do on the podcast. Like when I talk about like the heterodoxy 2.0, I, it's, I, I want to get to a place where instead of talking about the fact that we can't talk about things, right, that right. we just go ahead and talk about them. But that means talking about them in the right way and like really the right way, like not the way that's going to get a lot of clicks, not in the way that's going to, you know, appease your audience and like, you know, just make more of the echo chamber you know, echo. It's it's to really, really have the conversations that need to happen with with the right people. And so, you know, this, I, I often say, uh, often it's like if you're a smart person, you're smart enough to know to keep your mouth shut, right? But if if the smart, thoughtful people don't speak up, the stupid, thoughtless people are happy to do the job, and that's what we have. I think and what monetize need- it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I think what we need is just to refine the conversations now, say, okay, we're not going to be afraid to talk about these things, but the way to make them, the way to make those conversations haveable is to, is to show how they can be had respectfully and accurately. And I I can't say unassailably because nothing's ever going to be unassailable, but have that conversation in a way that nobody can come after you and tell you that you're you know, that that you're a horrible bigot. Nobody has come to me and said the way that you're talking about gender ideology is transphobic. Anybody who says that to me is acting clearly in bad faith. And you're making it it public as clear as possible to any third party observer that this criticism is in bad faith because I have done everything to cover my ass. Well, I mean, I, they actually, I don't see it, frankly. You're not I even don't, getting that. Right. I don't see it. I right. don't, I'm sure it's there. I'm sure people don't appreciate it. But the fact is, I am doing this with such excruciating care that I really don't think, I, I know nobody has any grounds for telling me that I am causing harm to, to anybody by having these conversations. If anything, I have heard that they are incredibly, um, productive and have illuminated, uh, you know, have been of great illumination and, you know, helped many, many people who don't have the whole story. So mm. anyway, that, and if that's anybody just claims the, harm, they can go fuck themselves. I don't care. The thing is like, th- there's nobody, any, there's nothing anybody could say to me that would make hmm. me, um, I mean, certainly like I, I would consider some, you know, criticism, but it's, it's just, it's just simply not true. So I think that what, you know, obviously like this is a subject I think a lot about and and I know a lot about at this point. So, you know, not, I'm not saying I'm going to get everything right, Right. obviously, but I just think that if we, you know, say, you say to yourself, I wanted to have this, I want to talk about X instead of bringing on obvious person to talk about X who has a best-selling book about it, or, you know, I know I'm going to get a million listens if I have this person on, I'm going to bring in this other person who's actually better on this subject and that will further the conversation. And I think that's what we have to start doing in this uh, space, this intellectual space. That's a horrible <laughs> word, isn't it? This space. Oh, oh my God, intellectual well, space. I have monologues about how much I hate the word space. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm giving you finger snaps or jazz hands or whatever is the least Thanks. triggering. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Megan. This thank is you, awesome. Megan. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are UncertainPod on the social media and our DMs are always open. If you feel like supporting us, share us with your friends and enemies. And until next time, stay sane.